Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is brought to you by flitterweb.com. Flitterweb is a new website where people can review the things they love and loathe online. It's like Yelp for the internet. To support the sites you love, go check out flitterweb.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 61. Why? Did the Romans survive? I think the narrative largely speaks for itself on how devastating the 7th century was for the Roman Empire. While the popular perception may always be that the decline and fall of Roman civilization came in the West in the 5th century, you know better. The Eastern Mediterranean was a Roman place, with people identifying themselves and their land by that name in 600 AD. What followed was a far more dramatic collapse than anything the West had seen, as the damaging war with Persia weakened the Roman army to the point where the Arabs could lift the entire eastern seaboard from their control in a matter of months. Between those two devastating conflicts, the empire went from being one of the most powerful states in the world to only a middling power in Europe. Hemmed in by a chaotic Balkans on one side and the mighty caliphate on the other, the Byzantines had no option but to grimly cling to what they had left. In today's episode, we're going to survey the changes to the Roman army and government, while also appreciating that it could have been much worse. The Romans are still here, and we have to ask how they survived. The headline stories are, of course, all bleak. The empire had lost two-thirds of its land and three-quarters of its wealth. About ten million subjects were now serving other governments or lost to imperial tax collectors. Not only was the empire much poorer than it once was, but Anatolia and the Balkans were also cut adrift from the profitable networks of trade that they had been connected to for the past six centuries. The rich lands of Syria, Mesopotamia, and Egypt had been wealthy for millennia, but only with the arrival of the Romans had that wealth penetrated Western Europe. Slowly, over the last few centuries, the collapse of the Roman Empire had cut off Western Europe from that prosperity, 
Britain in the 5th century, Gaul and Italy in the 6th, and now in the 7th century, what remained of Romania was cut off too. The wealth of the Middle East would fund the caliphate's growth, while the remaining traders who ventured into the Christian empire were cut to a trickle. In the land that remained in imperial hands, tax revenues had also dwindled. War had ruined many cities and farms, and annual raiding by the Arabs would make certain provinces permanently unprofitable. We should probably start with the collapse of most city life in Anatolia. We've already seen urban existence retreat in the Balkans, and over the course of the narrative episodes, you saw the eastern cities take a pounding. First Shavaraz and Shahin, then Muawiyah and Abdel Malik. The endless raids and attacks launched across the Taurus Mountains or by sea made peaceful existence in Anatolia an impossibility. Historian John Halden lists 45 major cities that were sacked during this time, some more than once. City life had already changed considerably since the days when the Roman Empire was a proud collection of self-governing city-states. By the 7th century, the upkeep of a town's circuit walls was the responsibility of the central government. But with Heraclius and others spending all their time and resources on the army, no one was coming to rescue the cities. So by the time that theme armies began to put down roots and rebuild local defences, many cities had already changed out of all recognition. Towns like Sardis or Pergamum retreated back to their citadel, usually up on a hill, which could be more easily defended, abandoning their suburbs. Some populations moved en masse to a new location, while other towns were left to the weeds and became quarries for building material. Across the centre of Anatolia, most cities either shrank considerably or disappeared. Those which survived most comfortably were the ones on the coasts. Trebizond, Nicaea and Smyrna, to name a few, all benefited from seaborne trade and their distance from the regular zone of raids. Cities like these may also have benefited from an influx of refugees from the abandoned areas. For those left behind, particularly in eastern Anatolia, life had become very insecure. Communication became difficult, the planting and harvesting of crops could expose you to danger, and the ranch-style farming, which was the major business of the Anatolian plateau, became a regular target for Arab raiders. To weather this storm, the theme armies would help fortify the remaining towns and litter the countryside with small forts and watchtowers, places where local people could hide when the Arabs appeared. Understandably, though, there was a general migration away from the most raided provinces, a situation which would lead various emperors to attempt to repopulate these unpopular areas with Slavs from the Balkans. Within the interior of Anatolia, copper coins disappear from the archaeological record. Cities cease to play the same role they'd once done in the life of the empire. They could hardly be hubs for market activity when safe transport could not be guaranteed. Trade became more localised, with the only large-scale customers being the theme armies or the government. Imperial administrators could still collect taxes when the roads were safe, 
and simply based themselves in well-defended towns or at the headquarters of the local theme, instead of the cities they'd once worked from. For those of you who don't know, the Arab raids are going to continue practically every year for the next century. And yet life in the countryside did continue. Anatolia is a big place, and particularly if you live further west, it was certainly possible to avoid being directly affected by them. The one place where city life was uninterrupted was Constantinople. Safe from the marauding raiders, the administration of the state could continue unmolested, while down in the streets, the market stalls continued to function with copper coins in regular use and taverns, brothels, beggars and gangs still mentioned in contemporary sources. However, with the cutting of the aqueduct of Valence during the Avar siege and then the cancellation of the grain doll, the population plummeted. Large areas of housing were abandoned and many public buildings fell into disuse. On the eve of the plague in 540, some estimate that the city's populace was approaching half a million. By 700 AD, the best guesses come in at 50 to 70,000 or possibly even less. Still a giant amongst contemporary metropolises, but a shadow of its former self. Listener KT asked whether the Deems were still politically active, which hopefully you now know that they were. Remember that Leontius stirred up the blues to help him create a hostile crowd as he overthrew Justinian II at the end of the century. While listener KP asks by how much did Byzantine tax revenue dwindle? It's tricky to be very accurate, of course, but historian Warren Treadgold has attempted some comparative budgets. At the start of the century, he estimates that Maurice would have been paying 8.5 million nomismata, or gold coins, in imperial expenses. Heraclius's spending had probably shrunk to just over 3.5 million on the eve of the Arab conquests, and by 700 AD, the state may have been paying out as little as 2 million, or less. The amount coming in was highly dependent on the efficiency of tax collection, how good the harvests had been, and whether raids were disrupting much territory. You can see from those numbers, though, that a drop from 8 to 2 million in terms of what the state could afford shows a drop of about three quarters in the empire's wealth. As I hinted at in the narrative, the structure of government had been changing rapidly as the east was taken from Roman hands. The example I gave was the role of the Praetorian prefect, The prefect of the east had been responsible for the land tax across all of the eastern provinces, but now most of that territory was gone, and the cities his men had worked from in Anatolia were gone too. Similarly, the count of the sacred largesse had been responsible for the imperial mints, but only one was left in the capital. The Count of the Private Fortune and the Count of the Patrimony had worked together to manage the imperial estates, which had included most of Egypt. Well, their workload became considerably lighter as the century wore on. None of this happened overnight, but by the following century, power had come to rest in the hands of the Logothetes. Men who had once served within the departments of grander officials, but now found themselves directly in charge of state affairs. 
the postal logothete would eventually replace the old master of offices and take charge of communications, embassies, and internal security. The general logothete was now responsible for taxation, and the military logothete paid the army. The Sacularios, who we met at the end of Heraclius's campaigns, supervised financial matters for the emperor. Within each different administration, the situation was rarely as clean-cut as I've just described. Ever since Constantinople was founded, emperors would change the functions of different roles and departments depending on their needs. Roman government was never as specialised as our own, except in a few areas. And the emperors would often hand responsibility to men that they trusted, so that the master of offices might suddenly be given the power to supervise the grain doll or some other function outside of his normal purview. We saw this when Justinian appointed Narses, his grand chamberlain, to be the general in command of the invasion of Italy. Emperors also had the incentive to switch things around, to avoid one department becoming too powerful and delaying or modifying his wishes, as bureaucracies tend to do. For the historian, this creates a difficult situation to define, so as we go on in the narrative, it may be less important what official position a man holds compared to how much trust the emperor places in him. As the administration adapted to the empire's new situation, it also shrank. Although the palace remained its usual buzzing hub of activity, it now hosted about 600 paid officials, rather than the estimated 2,500 who'd served Justinian. Out in Anatolia, the numbers shrank even more dramatically, as the whole diocesan level of administration just disappeared. Eventually, the provinces would be replaced by the themes as the basic unit of administration, but that won't come until the end of the next century. Another major casualty of the 7th century was the rank of senator. Since the building of Constantinople, the highest civilian rank of status had been repeatedly tampered with. You may recall one example in 500 AD. I talked about the splitting of senators into three ranks to further classify them. The Senate no longer met in formal session either, except when a new emperor was about to be chosen, and even then, those in the capital, and particularly those serving in the palace, were the ones wielding the real authority. But despite all these changes, the one thing which made a senator special was that he had legal and tax privileges which he could pass on to his sons. This kept the senators as an elite across the generations. But during the 7th century, this distinction disappeared. The empire desperately needed tax revenue from everyone. And, of course, many senators lost all of their property when the Arabs arrived. As the administration and senatorial elite shrank, though, the number of titles a man could accumulate expanded. This was a question of status. With the loss of so much property and the legal distinction of senatorial rank gone, the only way to earn visible social status in the capital was to be given an imperial title. Some titles came with an office the Sacularios, or the Grand Logothete. That title brought with it considerable prestige, along with much responsibility, a salary, 
and the opportunity to enrich yourself through, well, corruption. But those who had been Praetorian prefect or master of offices or named a patrician still kept those titles. And that status allowed them places of honour in imperial or ecclesiastical processions, which were an important feature of life in the capital. Some titles brought with them cash as well, or indeed the opportunity for influence. A quick example of this is the title of Spatharios. This means sword-bearer, and initially referred to the emperor's bodyguards. But as the name of the palace regiments changed, the title Spatharios became an honorary one. So one could be appointed the emperor's sword-bearer as a mark of distinction without any expectation that you would actually try to physically defend him. This situation might sound familiar to those of you who know about royal courts in Western Europe during later ages. Titles like Master of the King's Bedchamber and other vaguely humorous monikers were handed out as marks of distinction to political allies who were then not expected to appear anywhere near their sovereign's apartments. The emperors would prove more than happy to create new titles and offices to dole out to supporters or curry favour with their rivals, and over the years these ranks and orders will grow to staggering numbers. When added to the administrative confusion, we begin to get our modern sense of a Byzantine bureaucracy. But during the 7th century, this proved to be a great benefit. The world was an increasingly insecure place, and the lure of a paid office or special title in Constantinople kept men investing their time and effort in the life of the capital and the government that ran it. Despite losing so much during this time, the government maintained a way to keep the ambitions and interests of its upper class centred on the perpetuation of the Roman state. All of those paid positions were made possible because the empire kept taking in the land tax. As we saw last week, the failure to do this would see power decentralised to feudal lords. The Byzantines managed to keep collecting and distributing money and thus maintained a central government run by the emperor, just as they always had done. In fact, Constantinople was able to dominate the life of the empire to a greater extent than it had ever done before. It was now the only city in the empire of any major significance. The loss of Antioch, Jerusalem and Alexandria meant that all important decisions about government, the army and the church were now made in the capital. And hidden behind its formidable walls, the government was able to continue to dictate policy to its provincials. We saw an example of this when the general Valentine rebelled after the quick deaths of Heraclius and his son. The general brought an army up to the Bosphorus and attempted to grab the top job for himself. But unable to get his army into the city, the government survived and he was assassinated by a mob. Gaining control of the capital was even more important than ever if you wanted to rule the empire. Although a small civilian elite dominated the capital, out in the provinces a warrior aristocracy was developing, just as it did in the west. Landlords with significant property had to militarise 
to defend their lands. Many built fortified homes for themselves and lived out in the provinces rather than seeking fame in the capital. This would lead to many social changes, some of which were already visible in 700. The old urban civilian elite tended to not have too many children. It was easier to have one son and leave him the family wealth. But now increasingly large families were the norm. More children meant more help on the farm, more sons to enroll in the theme armies with the salaries that came with them, and more people to manage and defend different parts of the estate. Education was now far less important outside of Constantinople. A basic primary education might be more than enough to run the family farm, and anything beyond that was increasingly seen as a luxury. This brings us to the theme armies. The only real source of power that could compete with Constantinople, and the only place to gain a salary in gold coin outside of the capital. I should reiterate that most of the solid information we have on the themes comes from later centuries, so I won't go into great detail today, but here's what we know. As we saw in the narrative, what remained of the armies of the East, Armenia, Thrace and the Precentals, were given new headquarters in different areas of Anatolia and given instructions to defend their sector. Despite the debate still going on, it seems most likely that the soldiers were not given land in exchange for their service. They were still an army of volunteers, and thus were still paid. How much they were paid is more difficult to tell. We know Heraclius halved their salaries during his campaign, and it seems possible that Constance II made further reductions. We also know that the state returned to issuing men with equipment and uniforms, rather than giving them cash to buy their own. It seems likely that the soldiers were still paid a donative, or bonus, on the accession of a new emperor, and then every few years after that. And if the emperor required them for a major campaign, he would send cash with the army to help fund it. But in the meantime, quite how much of a regular salary the soldiers received is not clear. This leads into another hotly contested issue. How large was the army which remained? On the higher end of estimates is Warren Treadgold, who using later sources, including Arab records, gives a figure of 80,000 for the whole of the army. Maurice might in theory have had 150,000 troops at his disposal, so at first glance the figure doesn't seem too ridiculous. But when we look closer, it seems unlikely that the empire could have afforded half the number of men it had under arms before its finances had crashed by three quarters, even at a much lower rate of pay. Historians like John Halden, on studying later sources, conclude that perhaps the paper strength of the army was 80,000, but the actual number of active soldiers was far, far smaller. Later writers speak of three or four thousand cavalry as being a large force of men, strongly implying that as time goes on, the theme HQs would be the home of a few thousand professional soldiers at the absolute most. As we shall see when the narrative resumes, the Byzantines eventually give up trying to meet Arab raiders in open battle, 
It became more effective to let them through the mountain passes and then harass and ambush them as they made their way home. For these operations, only cavalry were really needed because they had the speed with which to make such tactics work. So it seems likely that most infantry and less essential cavalry received less and less pay from the state to the point where they were rarely called upon to do more than man their local defences in the event of a raid. In the meantime, these men would use the pay they did have to buy their own farms or marry into local families and work the land. Their status as soldiers might bring them the occasional and very welcome bit of cash, but they were no longer professionals in a real sense. Meanwhile, the strategos of the theme would keep a few thousand professional cavalrymen on full-time pay to do the real work of expelling invaders. When the emperors went on campaign themselves, they would take cash with them to pay all these part-time soldiers to put down their plows and come join the ranks. I will go into more detail about life as a soldier at the end of future centuries. But for now, that's the picture. The Roman army of old was gone. The theme armies were now entirely defensive units, learning to use the Anatolian countryside to their advantage in dealing with the constant raids. The empire could not afford and didn't really need anything more. If this all sounds quite vague for such a military revolution, then remember that our sources for the 7th century are very sparse. Most of these conclusions come from historical detective work looking at later evidence to piece together what happened hundreds of years earlier. We can't even confidently give Constance the second credit for establishing the themes in the first place. And if this sounds like a sad end to centuries of Roman military excellence, then I wouldn't be too mournful. The institutional experience of the army was invaluable in constructing the defences which now popped up alongside the rivers and valleys of Anatolia. The navy that would save Constantinople from destruction was maintained, and no Arab bases had yet been built on the western side of the Taurus Mountains. Given the financial and numerical disparity between the Arabs and the Romans by 700 AD, the Roman army was still performing well. It's just that its functions and needs had changed out of all recognition. This included, of course, the final dominance of cavalry over infantry. The infantry would now be recruited on a largely ad hoc basis, while the cavalry had to be fully professional to succeed. Those full-time soldiers were paid well enough that they would become local landowners and settle down in the lands they defended. Listener K asked whether there was a central training area for new army recruits. The answer is no, both before and after the themes. New recruits were trained wherever they joined up. There was no military academy. You would just be put through your paces where you were serving. Particularly now that the theme armies had taken root... Each district would have its own methods and identity while still passing down the accumulated wisdom of centuries of Roman army practice. Listener YA asked whatever happened to the legion system, or when at least did that term fall out of use. 
I'll have to refer you back to Diocletian's reforms of the army for when the classic legion was broken up into smaller units, and to my episode on the Strategicon for how Greek terms overtook Latin ones. But a very short answer is that the legion as the primary unit of the army disappeared by the end of the crisis of the 3rd century. It was replaced by field armies who operated as one rather than as individual detachments of troops as had been the case in the early empire and republic. So, why did the Romans survive? The answer is that their political and military institutions survived and adapted. But we can get a clearer picture from one last comparison with the Sassanid Empire's disappearance. Historian Mark Witto makes the case that the capture of Ctesiphon was what damned the Persians to defeat. Roman Persia actually had quite a bit in common in terms of strategic geography when the Arab armies appeared. Both sides could hide behind a large mountain range, the Zagros and the Tauruses, and both sides had their most loyal or most homogenous subjects behind those ranges. The Iranian plateau was the home to the Zoroastrian religion and the ethnic home of the Sassanid house. Similarly, the people of Anatolia were overwhelmingly orthodox in belief and Greek-speaking. So both sides could have surrendered the Fertile Crescent to the Arabs and then survived in their homelands. But while Constantinople stood well away from danger on the European side of the Bosphorus, Tessaphon lay directly in the path of the early Arab invasions. With Tessaphon gone, the Sassanid Empire lost its treasury, its administrative records, and most of its officials. Suddenly, with the political centre gone, Yazdegerd had lost his coercive power. He had lost his ability to centrally coordinate resistance to the Arabs. Soon enough, each region began looking out for itself, or was cut off by the invading Arabs. Tessaphon was also located in an area with a diverse population. Mesopotamia was filled with different peoples, many of them Monophysite or Nestorian Christians. You may remember Heraclius spending Christmas with the Nestorian patriarch when he was there. There were Zoroastrians, but many others with different religious and ethnic affiliations in the area. Many were content with Sassanid rule, but once it was gone, they had little incentive to agitate for its return. Meanwhile, in the Iranian homelands, revolts against Muslim rule would break out, but they had no focal point to rally around. Constantinople, by contrast, was hundreds of miles away, safe behind its huge walls, the Bosphorus, and at least two tricky mountain ranges. Even the sea itself helped protect the Roman capital. Because of the way the winds and currents run, it's far quicker to get from north to south across the eastern Mediterranean. So until the Arabs could establish permanent bases in the Aegean, any fleet sailing north had some hard work ahead of them. If Constantine had picked Antioch, or even Chalcedon as his new capital, it's entirely possible that the Roman Empire would have been destroyed 
either by the Persians or the Arabs. Instead, the survival of the capital meant the survival of the political system, the tax system, and the church leadership, all institutions which could continue to draw men's loyalty to the state. I hope that answers listener R.S.'s question about the difference between the Sassanid and Roman experiences in the wake of the Arab invasions. Despite its reduction in size and grandeur, the Roman state survived, and therefore so did the Romans. If this week's episode focused on the physical side of Roman survival, then next week's will be more about the psychological and spiritual, as we explore how Romans on both sides of the border reacted to the rise of the Arabs. Before I go, though, please could you do me a favour? Go to flitterweb.com and give the history of Byzantium a quick review. It will help others find the podcast and give me important feedback on how to improve things. You can do this, of course, for other podcasts you listen to or other sites you visit. If you want to give some love to an underappreciated website, service, or podcast, then Flitterweb is a great way to do so. You'll also be supporting a fellow listener who is supporting the show through this sponsorship. Just imagine the warm glow you'll feel for the rest of the day. Go check it out at flitterweb.com. That's F-L-I-T-T-E-R-W-E-B.com. And give a review to the history of Byzantium.